morning. Good to be with you this morning. I got a, a phone call from Tamara and said, are you coming or not? If you're not coming, we're canceling church. <laughs> wow, that put quite a responsibility on me. So I plowed through 10 feet of snow and I got here. No, it wasn't all that bad. <laughs> anyway, the, uh, the last words before I read scripture, just a couple of comments. The last words of a dying person are rarely forgotten by those who are there to hear them. Some enter eternity without saying anything. Others enter eternity making comments that reveal their values, their priorities, their innermost thoughts. When P.T. Barnum, the famous 19th century showman, who founded the Ringling Brothers and uh, Bailey, Barnum and Bailey Circuses, when he died, his last words were a question. How were the receipts today at Madison Square Gardens? Actress Joan Crawford was furious when, as she lay dying, her maid began to pray out loud. She said, don't you dare ask God to help me. Leonardo da Vinci, surveying his life's work, said this, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Imagine. General John Sedgwick, who fought in the Civil War, had his final words cut off in mid-sentence as his soldiers were diving for cover from snipers. He said, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. Karl Marx, the father of communism, turned to his housekeeper who urged him to tell her his last words so she could write them down. And he shouted to her, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. This morning and during the season of Lent, we begin to consider the last words of the Son of God. Seven last sayings spoken from a cross, each word filled with meaning and purpose, each word a window to help us understand Good Friday better. I'm going to read that first word from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 26, pardon me, chapter 23, verses 26 to 38. We read this. As the soldiers led Jesus away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. 
When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for Jesus' words. Help us understand what they mean for us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. According to those who figure out such things, it was probably on the Friday of April 7, A.D. 30, that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. That means it was springtime in Judea. It was the time of year when everything comes to life again, except that on a place called Golgotha, the landfill of Jerusalem, from noon until three, something was dying. Three men hung there on wooden crosses, two common criminals, and in the middle, the one we call our Savior. With a sign written in three languages above his head, this is the King of the Jews. It was meant as a joke. But as those who follow Jesus know, it was the truth. And it was the charge for which he had been sentenced to die. It was, as you can only imagine, of course, a horrible way to die. There was no death by lethal injection in Jesus' day. There was no effort to make capital punishment quick or humane at all. The whole idea was to kill the convict as slowly and painfully as possible so that everybody who witnessed it or heard about it got the clear message, break the law, and this could be you. The problem was they killed an innocent man this time. He was no criminal. He was a good man. What brought all of his detractors together was their rage at Jesus. Some were angry because he was less than they wanted him to be. Others were angry because he claimed to be and was more than they wanted him to be. But they all turned against him and they killed him for not being who they wanted him to be. He was a good man. But in the words of one writer, he was not such a good God. If being God means being strong and big and out of reach, he was a suffering God, which... Nobody had ever heard about before. 
His goal was to transform, to change the world by loving it rather than controlling it. To change you and I by loving us rather than controlling us. And that made his life hell a lot of the time. Compared to the founders of other religions, well, Buddha died apparently peacefully at age 80, surrounded by his followers. Confucius died, an old man after completing the ancient writings of the Chinese people. Muhammad died in the arms of his favorite wife while he was the ruler of Arabia. Jesus was not so fortunate. But if he had been, what would he have had to offer anyone else who suffers for things they did not do? Anyone else who dies too soon? Anyone else who is abandoned? Anyone else ever punished for the offense of loving too much or caring too much without proper respect for the authorities? The truth is, Jesus knows he has been there. There is nothing that hurts us that he does not know about. How he loved you and how he loved me. His love, of course, was not always the sweet kind. Yeah, when he was holding a child, blessing a child, washing his friend's feet, but just as often it was a fierce kind of love. Love that wouldn't put up with any kind of cruelty or hypocrisy or injustice. Love that wouldn't just look on, stand by and do nothing and watch as a leper was shunned, as a widow would go hungry. Love that turned over tables and cracked whips before it allowed anybody to turn God into one more consumer item to be bought and sold at market. Love above all that would not even stop at his own death to give sinners, to give his enemies a new life as sheer gift, sheer grace. Consider the first of his last words from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Forgive. Forgive. In our world, it's pretty clear what you ought to do. To enemies, you clean their clock. You take them to the cleaners. You string them up, hang them to dry. You do it to them before, if not after. They do it to you. I don't know how many of you remember. I know this is an age thing. The name Bernard Getz. Two days before Christmas, 1984, this slight and frail 37-year-old self-employed electrical engineer boarded the number two express on New York City's subway system and found himself in the same car with four black teenagers. When one of them told Getz to give him $5, Getz stood up, drew a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver that he had under his jacket, and he began shooting. All four youths were wounded, two of them critically. Later, it came out that two of the four youths had been shot in the back while trying to flee. That Getz had 
coldly fired a second round into one of his victims, saying, You don't look too bad. Here's another. Getz got off at the subway at the next station and got rid of the gun. A week later, on New Year's Eve, he turned himself in to the police. By then, the man known as the subway vigilante had become a national celebrity. Most of those who wrote to newspapers and called into radio talk shows were pro-Getz. Thugbusters, t-shirts, urging his acquittal, became a hot item. The guardian angels collected money from New York City subway riders for his defense fund. Support for Getz crossed racial lines and ultimately all he got as punishment was six months for illegal possession of a firearm. Bernard Getz became a celebrity, largely due to a growing public concern about crime and because he embodied a citywide, even a nationwide, a worldwide anger, a passion for revenge. In our world, it's pretty clear what you ought to do to enemies. You do what Getz did. You do it to them before they do it to you. But that's not how it is in God's world. In God's kingdom, you love your enemies. You do good to those who hate you. You bless those who curse you. And you pray for those who mistreat you. And so Jesus' first prayer, surrounded by his enemies, by those who hated him, cursed him, and mistreated him, was this. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. How could he do it? I know, and you know, this is way easier to preach than to practice. Especially when you look at the circumstances in which he offers this prayer. And, and the sense of the Greek language used is that he said this prayer not once, but over and over and over. Then the question just becomes even more intense. How could he do it? Luke 23, verse 34, actually begins with the little word, then. In Greek, it's two letters, a D and an E, if you transliterate it. De, which the NIV translators decided not to include, and which is an adverb of time. Then, Jesus said. It means directly after, but directly after what? Directly after having been illegally arrested, unfairly tried, unjustly convicted. Then. Directly after he'd been whipped all night long, then carried that heavy cross to the place of execution. Then. Directly after his head had been pierced with a crown of thorns, his hands nailed, his feet riveted to an old rugged cross. Then. Then Jesus cries out a prayer that changes everything, even if most no one there sensed it. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The thing is, he had an alternative. And in a culture that turns a Bernard gets into a national hero, a pretty attractive one at that. He could have become known as the Golgotha Vigilante or something similar. You use your imagination. 
He certainly had a whole lot more than a 38 caliber Smith and Wesson at his disposal. You go back to the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane when soldiers came to arrest Jesus and the disciple Peter, in Jesus' defense, took out his sword and you remember what Jesus said. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Think about it. A Roman legion at that time consisted of six thousand soldiers. Multiply that by 12, you're talking 72,000 angels who were ready to come to the rescue of Jesus. You remember how many angels it took to turn the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into a pile of ashes, don't you? Just two. And how many angels it took to kill 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night after the king mocked Israel's God, threatened Jerusalem's destruction? Just one. What do you think 72,000 angels could have accomplished on this first Good Friday? When he could have called out to the angels, Charge! Go get them! Instead, he prayed for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. In other words, hold those angels. Hold those angels. Over and over, the Old Testament talks about the coming of the day of the Lord as a day of wrath. John the baptizer told those who asked about Jesus, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Paul talks about the wrath of God that is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth about God by their wickedness. And what better day to release that anger, that wrath against all the crimes of humanity all of our neglect of his law and indifference to his love, then this very moment that his only and beloved son is being nailed to a cross and hung up to die. But elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus is described as our advocate, our lawyer. <laughs> You think of the familiar words of Romans 8. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. In this simple prayer, Jesus became our advocate there on Golgotha. This is how African-American preacher Johnny Youngblood imagined Golgotha as, as a courtroom where Jesus is our lawyer pleading our case before the judge of heaven and earth, the son praying over and over in between comments from the father, Father, forgive them. Don't destroy them. Hold those angels. The father said, why should I forgive them? Number one, said Jesus, because You've got too much invested in humankind. Remember, Father, remember when you got ready to make humankind that you made men and women in your image and after your likeness. So if you destroy humankind, you will destroy a significant part of yourself. I plead that you forgive them and hold those angels. The Father said, that's it. 
No, said Jesus. I move that you hold the angels because don't forget. Don't forget the presence of the devil. If you decide to destroy humankind because of what's happening here at Golgotha, Satan will be able to say, told you not to make humans. Told you they're going to mess up. But no, you kicked me out. You went ahead and made man, and he did mess up too. Please, Father, forgive them. Hold those angels. Otherwise, the devil will be able to say, you made a huge mistake, mister. The father said, is that all? No, said the son, no. If you send those angels, what will happen is that my mission will be terminated before it is completed. I've got a stake in this too, remember. I stepped down through 42 generations. I came through Mary's womb. I spent those years in Bethlehem and then in Egypt and then in Nazareth. And now here I am carrying out the mission that I am all about. I don't want my mission aborted. Please hold those angels and let me finish my mission. The father said, is that all? And Jesus said, Father, please notice, I'm not asking you to take me off of the cross. I'm asking you to forgive them. I am willing to fulfill scripture that says the Messiah was pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. I'm willing to take on the sins of the world. Even if it means my death, even death on the cross, I'm asking you to forgive them. It's my brow, my back, my hands, my feet. I'll go through with what you want me to do. I pray to you for them. Father, forgive them. Please hold those angels. And then the Father said, And who is it that you want forgiven? And Jesus said, Them. Father, them? Yes. And who is them? And Jesus said, all of them. Be more specific. And Jesus said, I want forgiveness to overflow here at Golgotha. I want it to overflow so that the soldier at the foot of the cross can receive it. So that in a few minutes, I'll be able to tell this thief on my right, today you will be with me in paradise. But I also want forgiveness to be retroactive. I want forgiveness to flow all the way back to that garden called Eden. And I want a man named Adam and a woman named Eve to be eligible for this forgiveness. I want them forgiven back there, right here. And then I want forgiveness to flow far enough into the future so that when Lummert and Alice Slofstra give birth to a baby boy named Berent, more usually called Bert, Forgiveness will be waiting for him when he exits from the womb. And then I want it to flow far enough ahead so that his children and his children's children will receive this forgiveness. Father, forgive them. But there is one last question. What have they done to deserve forgiveness? And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. They don't know. No. The soldiers are just following orders. The Jewish leaders think they're supporting good biblical values. The angry and mocking mob think they're standing up for law and order. They don't know that they are Satan's tools. Satan who's so slick he can masquerade as an angel of light and fool even the very elect of heaven. And none of them truly understand yet that I am your son. They know I am Mary's baby and Joseph's boy. 
but they have never experienced incarnation before. They don't know you've done a new thing by taking on human flesh. On all of that, Father, I rest my case and pray, forgive them and hold those angels. And the Father heard the argument of the Son, whom Peter called the shepherd and overseer of our souls, the one Paul wrote who was at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And when he heard the prayer of his son, he said to those 72,000 angels who were armed and ready, at ease. At ease. And right then and there, before that cross that even been lifted up, forgiveness became available. We didn't even have to ask for it. God's forgiveness is preemptive. Even before we ask. Paul Harvey, a radio guy from some time ago who loved telling stories, told a story about a man named Carl Coleman who was driving to work one morning when he was rear-ended by another motorist. Both cars stopped and the woman driving the other car got out to check the damage and she was completely distraught. It was her fault, she admitted, but she was driving a brand new car. Two days out of the dealer's showroom, and she dreaded facing her husband. Coleman was sympathetic, but he had to do what was right, and he asked for her registration, her insurance information, and so she reached into the glove compartment, and she got out all the necessary documents, which were in an envelope, and on the very first paper she pulled out, she found these words written by her husband. In case of accident, remember, honey, it's you I love, not the car. Jesus doesn't just forgive. He preemptively forgives. We still often think that repentance and confession comes first. No. <laughs> no. no, no, no. Forgiveness comes first. It becomes ours when we receive it as a gift of grace. Receiving the gift, we believe. We confess. We repent. It's the heart of the gospel. A world religion scholar characterized the most notable aspect of the three main religions that trace their roots to Abraham like this. Islam, prayer. Judaism, family. Christianity, forgiveness. Forgiveness of sinners, of enemies. That forgiveness became available on Good Friday. And you know how I know that it did? Because shortly after they nailed Jesus to a cross, a criminal got last-minute reservations on the evening train to paradise. Because shortly after he rose from the dead, he made denying Peter and doubting Thomas Apostles of his grace. And a little bit later turned a murderer named Saul into a missionary named Paul. I know they got forgiveness because I also know that without my having done anything to deserve it, the Spirit of God came into my life and let me know that Jesus Christ was my Savior. And he came into your life so that we sit here today and we worship and we praise him as the Lord of our lives. Even though I have skeletons in my closet, 
small ones. And even though I still have sins in my life, my salvation, my life, my eternal glory is not about what my hands have done. It's what my Savior has done. I love because he first loved me. We live because he lives. And so today, as we reflect on the cross of Christ and in the coming weeks, as we in our imagination see our Savior nailed to a cross and his blood and his bile begin to flow, we consider the enormity of our cruelty and our ignorance. But as we hear Jesus speak his first word from the cross, not to us, but to the Father. Not to us, but certainly, certainly for us. We hear especially and first his even greater grace. Father, forgive them, you, me, for they do not know what they are doing. Thank God it's Friday. Thank God for Good Friday. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your forgiveness while we were sinners, while we were enemies. Help us respond to such grace by living grace-filled lives, grace-filled relationships that point others to this amazing love and grace of our Savior and Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.